You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. I compared the the birth of Jesus uh, to a ballet performance uh, with a nod to my man Tristan, um, the performance they did with the the school that uh, Friday before. And the point was this, is that in an audience, you're looking at this and it's like amazing and the music and the movement and everything. It's almost this this powerful moment of, of just expression of emotion and feeling. But yet, I know from the other side, and you can see this especially with the younger children who are part of the performance, they're, they're oblivious to the big moment. They're like, all right, am I standing in the right place? You know, and you know, move over, you're too close to me, and keeping up with the right person. And even in the professional, you know, there, there's, I'm, you know, I'm trying to hit their marks, trying to keep pace with the music, and where are they at in spacing, and there's all these things that they're trying to work through the logistics. In fact, the true professionals, the ones who are the greatest, one of their key attributes is that they make it look easy. Um, and so that almost as if they're not trying and they're not effort, but but they are, and there's a lot there. So same thing going on, but two different emotions that are being felt and expressed in that. And so my thought, or my, the way I made that analogy to the birth of Jesus is that we kind of have this, you know, it's all oh, this is sweet and precious and all oh, holy and silent and as if, and, but when you read the stories from the perspective of the three primary characters, Mary, Joseph, and then the, the shepherds, it's interesting that the first response the angel says to them says is fear not or don't be afraid. Really what was gone, these guys were just scared out of their socks. I mean, they, it was not one of these awe-inspiring moments. This was, this for some of them was just um, horrifying, at least for the shepherds. They were really scared. But for all of them, for Mary, she was overwhelmed by the scope of what God was asking her to do. For Joseph, he was the fear of going against what he knew in his heart to be right and wrong and having to address that. For the shepherds, they were just scared with such a profound encounter with you know, a sky full of angels. It was kind of a big deal. And so that was their emotion. That's what they were dealing with. Now, due to the storm last week, we had to shuffle some things because there's three in this. And so the decision was made, we're going to keep Joseph today. And we're going to, unfortunately, forego the conversation about the shepherds later on. Um, but so our passage today comes from the book of Matthew. Uh, it's actually the first book in the New Testament. Matthew is the only account. Now, now remember, the, there's the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or what we refer to as the Gospels. Each one of them are essentially historical accounts of the life of Christ. Mark is the only one that talks about this birth story from the perspective of Joseph. Now, we have to remember that when we look at history in the 21st century, we look at it as being factual. You know, like the dates are accurate, the events are accurate, and we we work through that trying to make sure it's, it's actual and precise. Back in the day, they were looking at these things as if they were trying to make a bigger point. So the the data within a story was not necessarily factual. It was made to tell a bigger story. Now, it's not that it was false, but it was different. So what's interesting in Matthew is he's talking about this story of Joseph. Immediately before the passage we're going to read, he gives you this list. It's this list of the genealogy of Joseph. And so he starts, um, so he uses 17 verses, and he starts with Abraham which is the founder or basically the beginner of the Israelite people. 
And then he identifies 14 generations to David, um, and then 14 generations to the exile, and then 14 generations to Joseph. Now, here's the thing. We know his list is inaccurate. From other lists that are in other parts of the Bible, he's missing people. There's names in here that he's not accounted for. The fact that it's 14, 14, 14 is just too perfect, and it's not right. Um, so for us, we're like, well, does that mean it's wrong? Is it bad? You know, how do we interpret this? So let, let me give you an example how, how we, 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 um, we want to think about this. I'm going to give you the list of the presidents of the United States for the last 50 years. Okay, ready? Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, George H. Bush, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. Now, what do you notice about my list I just gave you? There's no Democrats in there, was there? <laughs> now, before anyone goes anywhere, that was, I'm trying to make a point here, and it's not political. Okay, so to all my Democratic friends who might be here, there's no offense. It just, it was, it was easier to make the point. So is my list wrong? No, because they were all presidents in the United States in the last 50 years. So... It's not wrong. So why did I omit the Democrats? That's, don't answer that one. It's, it's, it's a rhetorical question. That's the million dollar question. Why did I omit that? So when we're looking at this list of Matthew, you realize, hey, there's names missing. And we realize, all right, well, it's not so much that he was trying to be deceitful or he was wrong. He's trying to make a bigger point. And unfortunately, it's just quite often in scripture, they, the, the writer of that particular book doesn't just come out and say, here's why my list is the way it is. We as the readers have to infer what he's trying to do. And it's harder for us because there's 2,000 years that have gone by. And we don't get the culture. We don't get all that stuff. And so we have to look at what Bible scholars and people who spend their lives researching, studying these things. And with regard to Matthew's list, there is absolutely no consensus as to why Matthew wrote his list the way he did. Here's my thought. Here's why I think Matthew's list is the way it is. Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews. We know that about his book. From the Jewish standpoint, the Israelite standpoint, their history began with Abraham. So we're going to start there. Then he leads down some generations and it comes to David. David was the most powerful of all the kings of Israel. Israel was never stronger. Their territory never more expansive than under David's reign. It was the glory days, the highlight of the Israelite people. So he put a marker there. Then he goes more generations and he gets to the exile, which is the lowest moment where they were conquered and carried away into other countries. And then he comes 14 more generations. It's okay, now we're here. Again, the 14 is a multiple of seven, which some people say is, you know, is a spiritual number. And so it's symbolic as to why he set it up that way. Here's what I think Matthew's saying. I think when Matthew in his list, the way he set it up and saying Abraham, David, the exile, and now here, what he's doing, he's setting up. He said, what I'm about to tell you is not a random event. The entirety of our history has been pointing to this moment. And so we look at it as, man, what a boring list. For those who are reading it, we're like, oh my gosh, this, this, this. It all lines up. It all makes sense. This is going to be amazing. 
And that's where we get into our passage today from Matthew chapter 1. So he sets it up that way, and then we come into this Matthew. So if you want to follow along in the screen, or if you want to have uh, one of your devices, or if you actually have an actual Bible these days, uh, you can read along from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incident uh, in the life of Joseph and the the coming of Jesus. And Lord, what it it has to say to us today. Father, I pray that uh, you would speak through me, Father, I ask. And the words I would share would be what, what people need to hear. Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that you would speak even in ways that I might not communicate, but that you desire to impact others, we pray. So we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's walk this out a little bit. Um, As I mentioned two weeks ago, when we're talking about Mary, as was the custom of the day, a young girl, 13, 14 years old, was usually engaged to a man. The engagement period could last up to a year, but the engagement was a legally binding agreement. There were witnesses, there was a contract signed. Um, It was legally binding. In fact, if the man died before the final wedding, she was considered a widow. Okay, so that contract is when the marriage began. However, until the final public wedding ceremony, she lived with her parents you know, she lived her life with, with her own family, and there certainly was no physical union between them during that time period. So in verse 18, when it tells us that she, she was pledged to be married, but before they came together, what Matthew is telling us is that they were in this in-between stage. They'd already signed the contracts, the witnesses, everything was official, but somewhere in between that time, between it became public, so it could have been a few weeks, like a few months, we don't know. But it's in between is when um, if we find out that she's pregnant. Now, I think it's interesting here, just the way it's just, it, it, that's all it says. She was found to be pregnant. Now, we also know from Luke, the story we're looking at from Mary, that when Mary hears from the angel and he gives her this, you know, you're going to become pregnant and all this stuff, It just says, we're given the impression like within a day or two, she goes to her relative, Elizabeth, and she spends the next three months with Elizabeth. Okay, and so now she comes home, and what happens? 
she's at this point in time, three months is usually, it's usually, usually it's three to four months, or from what I understand, for a young woman who's pregnant for the first time to start showing. So it's not as if they had one of these, uh, um, you know, early pregnancy tests to find out, you know, the way you knew someone's pregnant was, it was visibly evident, at least from those on the outside, they could know that. She might know that beforehand. So she was found to be pregnant. In other words, she couldn't hide it anymore. It was become visibly evident that she was pregnant. Now think about that for a moment. She's been gone three months, and she comes home and she's pregnant. Imagine that first conversation with Joseph. You know, Joseph sees us, hey, Mary, missed you. What's new? No, <laughs> oh, not much. Um, you know, hey, you're not going to believe this, but three months ago, you know, I was out, you know, out in the market just to mind my own business, and some crazy guy said he was an angel, shows up and says, you know, that I've been chosen by God to, you know, bear his son, and he's going to save the world, and through some divine osmosis, I'm now pregnant. How, how do they have that conversation in, in a way that could be anything but really painful and hurtful? And I mean, man, put yourself in Joseph's place. I mean, in my, when I do that, there's only one option. There's only one option is that Mary's been unfaithful to me. She's gotten pregnant and she's concocted this weird angelic story to cover her tracks. That somehow, there's no other reasonable explanation for this. And then, so, in a, in a verse where it says that Joseph was righteous. Now, in some translations, it says that Joseph was faithful to the law, which meant that he was, he, was, he was a religious person. He was one who followed the way things were supposed to be done. And according to Jewish law, he had no options. There was no way he could marry her. The only choice he had was how? To do it publicly, to shame her and embarrass her, to save face for himself, to say, that, hey, it wasn't me, she did this, or divorce her quietly and actually take on the shame, a lot of the shame on his own self by doing it that way. And that's what he decided to do. Decision was made. And then Joseph has a dream. And everything changes. But here's the thing. Nothing changed. Absolutely nothing. People were still going to know that Mary became pregnant before they got married. People were still going to gossip. People were still going to ridicule them publicly and privately. He still had to deal with the shame that was going to be on him and his family. Nothing had changed in that regard. Even though he knew Mary wasn't unfaithful, Joseph still had to decide if he was going to live with that embarrassment and the shame by staying married or to avoid all of that by going through with a divorce. In Joseph, we see a simple rule of life. You can live your life to please people, or you can live your life to please God, but you can't do both. So we know what Joseph did. It tells us that he made the decision after the dream to, to take Mary as his wife. But what does this situation, what does it say to us? how we might understand some of these things in our day and age. <clears throat> one, I think one of the things we can learn from Joseph is that pleasing God often means disappointing people. 
Some of us need to stop trying to live up to other people's expectations. Your self-worth should be based on what God thinks of you, not others. Uh, There's one day when uh, Sarah, our daughter, was very young, and um, I was was probably in, we were in Minnesota at the time, she's probably maybe five or six, and if I remember correctly, I'm probably working on a sermon, actually, and so I think we were the only two up, and so I'm, I'm working on it, and she's just making all kinds of noise. She's just playing with her toys, and she is just singing and just talking to her. Just, you know how little kids, especially some of the little girls do, and she was just doing that and just driving me nuts because I'm trying to work. And so I look over and I go, wow, you are really making a lot of noise. And without pausing, she didn't even look up. She just, she's responding. She goes, I'm supposed to make noise. I'm a kid. And kept right on playing as if that's what was supposed to be. And she wasn't worried about what I thought of her. She wasn't worried about what was going to... She was just happy being who she was in the moment, the way God had created her to be. A kid. Like Joseph, we need to be considerate of others, what others expect of us. Obviously, you know, I would hope that as she matures, and she did, she's a little more respectful of the noise and what, how it affected other people. But I would hope that none of us become so preoccupied with what others think or what we think they might think that it shapes how we live our own life to the detriment of the way God had created us. We need to be more concerned about what God thinks of us than what others think. And I can say this unequivocally without any hesitation. Well, the way God thinks of you is with overwhelming love and compassion. That, more than any other emotion, is how he looks at you and perceives you. There is nothing you can do today that would cause God to love you any more than he does right now. You can't earn any more God's favor. He loves you completely. Let me say it the opposite way, too. There's nothing you can do today negatively that would cause God to love you any less than he loves you right now. God's love is total and complete, and that should be the basis by which you live your life. So pleasing God sometimes means that we disappoint people. So from Joseph, we also learn that if you're not ready to be criticized for your obedience to God, you're not ready to be used by God. Um. I know about you, but we, we, we cut the cable cord a couple years ago. And so, but we have, uh, we have a Netflix and Amazon Prime memberships. And right now, uh, we're, wa- we're working through Frasier. How many of you remember that series back, was it the 80s and 90s? And it's funny, it's just, uh, we like it. But anyway, the, the, two, the primary character, Frasier, and his brother, um, Niles, are... are they're just these snobby, snooty, pretentious. Um, you know, they spend all of their time trying to live up to a, not just to a standard, but to convince everyone around them that they're at that standard. It's about impressing people, and it creates for some of the funniest scenes and scenarios when things don't work out that way. Here's the thing, though. Each of us want to fit in. Whether, you know, I don't think, you know, whether it's, a, it's this haughty, snooty, pretentious group of friends or neighbors, most of us, that's not our ideal, but maybe it's a group of colleagues at work. 
that there's a group there that you want to be part of. They're the in group and you want to be part of that. Or maybe it's some people in the neighborhood. Maybe it's a group of kids at school, the popular ones or the jocks. Maybe it's a group that you're not a part of but would like to. And sometimes our efforts to want to fit in cause us to be untrue to ourselves. And even worse, sometimes our efforts to fit in may even cause us to draw away from God and the things of God. During my high school years, I was uh, what is known as a closet Christian. I was, I was incredibly afraid of what others might think of me if they knew. Not only was I a Christian, but my dad was a pastor at the time. I never told anyone about my faith. I was uh, petrified that if they found out that I would be a social outcast, that I would never have friends, they would make fun of me. So I never said anything about my faith. It's the only time in my life that if I had a do-over, I would do that over. That, that's everything else I'm good with, but that's one season of life I'm like, oh, if I could do that one over again. If I had the opportunity to go back and change things, that's something I would do differently. See, while there's a good possibility that I may have been teased and may have had effect, you know, some, there may have been some negative repercussions from some kids, I also suspect there's a lot of other kids whom I didn't get to know at a different, deeper level because they didn't know I was a Christian and we never got to share that life because they were also Christians and probably struggling like I was what it meant to live out our life of faith in a public high school. So I probably missed that opportunity. I definitely missed out on opportunities to be used by God in the lives of other people. That I know about because I didn't give God that opportunity. If we're not willing to be criticized for who we are in our faith and obedience of God, God can't use us for his purposes. There has to be that willingness to step out in faith, regardless of the repercussions that allows us to be who God wants us to be, but also allows God to use us in a way that he wants to use us. That can't be known ahead of time. You can't look ahead and say, this is what's going to happen. We don't know. And that's the excitement and joy of following Jesus is you never know what's around the next corner. It's always something. I tell my kids all the time, following Jesus is life's greatest adventure. Because you just don't know. When you put your hands in that, the, the, the risen king and you surrender your life to him and say, God, wherever you want, sometimes it's pretty cool stuff that happens that you never know about. And you never, but unless you do that, unless you take that step of faith, you really have no opportunity. You don't give God an opportunity to do that. So if you're not ready to be criticized for obedience to God, you're not ready to be used by God. And lastly, from Joseph, we learn that extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience. In verse 24, uh, it says that Joseph woke up and he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. What I, what for me in my mind is that what happened between he woke up and he did what the angel said? You know, did he immediately rush over to Mary's house? Mary, you're not going to believe this. I just had this dream. You know, and or did he wait till after lunch and a little more casual? You know, or, you know, what? But at some point in time, he had to have this conversation with Mary. What did that conversation look like? 
You know, did he have to apologize because he was, you know, or what was that dynamic? And imagine the conversation that now had to occur with the parents, both sets of parents. Hey, mom and dad, I just had this dream. I'm not going to divorce Mary. I'm taking her to my wife and, and her parents. I mean, I mean, there's a lot that had to happen in between. He woke up and he took her to be his wife. The relational dynamics there were, are, uh, for me, it's just fascinating to think about what might that have looked like. And then did he bring her home with, did he bring her home that same day, next week? You know, what did that look, you know, again, I always come away from these things with more questions than answers. But for me, it's, it's the human dynamic that gives this stuff meaning and purpose. And for me, it helps me understand how, how am I supposed to live my life of faith? Now, here's the thing. In all of this, he's had this dream and now he's, he's convinced that Mary didn't lie to him and, you know, that, that he understands this. But in that moment of him making this decision, nothing has changed. The circumstances are still what they are. He still had to face the gossip and the ridicule and the shame. Nothing had changed, and yet everything had changed. And for so many of us, we experience that same type of experience where something happens that's just, it derails life. But quite often, whether it's a dream like Joseph or a comment made by a friend or loved one or a, Bible, a verse we read in the Bible that just takes our perspective and turns it just a little bit, just enough to say, huh, okay, here we go. Nothing changes. We still have to live out life the way it was, but it's just enough to say, what well, God, you're with me. And that's what Joseph was saying at this point in time. And that's what he was realizing. You know, um, I have to wonder, though, why did God wait so long to tell Joseph his dream? You know, why didn't, you know, Mary had her encounter with the angel. Why didn't the same night the angel come to Joseph in a dream and say, all right, here's what's going to happen. That way the next day they both could talk and say, you know, hey, I met this crazy guy. Yeah, I had this crazy dream. Wow, I wonder what God's going to do. And they could do this together, but it didn't happen. Mary disappears for three months. She comes back and she's pregnant. So I don't know how long of a time period that was, whether it was days or weeks, but Joseph is wrestling with this at a very deep level, a very profound level. And I often have to wonder, why didn't God give him the dream earlier to save him that angst that he didn't have to go through that painful experience to the extent that he did? Like most questions that begin with why, uh, they don't have answers. Um, they're not just not any good ones. Most why questions uh, never do have good answers. Here's what I do know, is that you don't have to understand everything completely to know that they're true and to be obedient to that truth. So even while why Joseph may not have understood everything, and maybe it didn't happen the way that we would have said, hey, it would have been less painful for Joseph, or maybe we would have liked something happen in our own life to be a certain way, and it didn't, and why did it happen this way, not that way, and we don't know. But here's what we do know. God's in the middle of this. That's enough. Let's just keep moving and keep going. And maybe the wise will answer themselves in due time, maybe not, but you know what? It's okay. God's in the middle of this. I can trust him, and I can be okay with that. See, you and I have a choice. 
We have a choice to live our life narrative by what the world determines, or we have a choice to live our life narrative, live out our life in a way that's in obedience to God. One of them is going to predominate in our life. And my encouragement to all of us is that we choose to jump full in. This, this thing of living for Jesus is not a weekend kind of a thing. That's something you do, well, you can, technically. That's not the way it was intended. This idea that we've seen from Joseph and Mary, and this, it's an all-inclusive Monday through Sunday type of life. We jump all in, and we see what God will do. Joseph accepted his dream as being from God, and everything else then fell into place. I would like to think that when Joseph woke up, his heart was filled with joy. Joy knowing that Mary didn't lie to him. She didn't cheat on him. That in the midst, there's joy knowing that in the midst of all the turmoil he was going to have to face, that God was in it. I would like to think that he woke up with joy knowing that there's feeling and recognition that somehow that he's part of God's redemptive plan for all humanity. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? So I would like to think that in the midst of all this, that Joseph was feeling the sense of joy and that when he went to Mary that day, that they celebrated together. Joyful of what God was doing in their lives and through their lives together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Joseph and for, uh, Father, just the difficult season he went through. Lord, many of us have gone through, maybe you're going through right now, a difficult season in our life, and we're not sure what to do. All the circumstances would point to a certain conclusion, but maybe, Father, there's room for something else. Maybe, Lord God, you want to do something different. So, Father, my prayer is that if there's any here today that are wrestling with a decision, not knowing what to do, that, uh, Lord, it may not be a dream, But Father, there would be something conclusive that would come to them that they would then be able to say, God has spoken to me. I now have clarity as to what I need to do next. And then Father, in the midst of that, give them courage to take that step. They may not know the ultimate final picture, the ultimate final destination, but they have enough to take the next step. Give them courage to do that. Father, when we are obedient to you, when we follow the path you've set before us, Father, amazing things happen. Father, things that would give us hope and expectation and, Lord, even joy, knowing that we're walking through life with you by our side. Thank you, Lord God, for that love that you show us in this way. And, Father, it's with joy that we say thank you. We say thank you for calling us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you give us and all the blessings that you show us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.